Be Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Hey everybody, Doc Bryan here and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. And today with me, I have Timothy Walker. Timothy, it's good to have you with us here. Good to be here. Now, in full disclosure, uh, Timothy is a member of my church and uh, I have done some counseling with him. So everything that we talk about today is outside the scope of clergy privilege and outside of of doctor-client confidentiality. So uh, the attorneys made me say that <laughs> so that we don't get in trouble. As I said, we're glad to to have you with us here today. Tell us a little bit about where you were born uh, growing up as a child. I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas at the uh, the Baptist Hospital of the day, mm-hmm. and was uh, presented for adoption to my parents at seven months of age. That uh, was uh, Corabel and uh, William Walker. And then uh, they built a house for the family, uh, which was what uh, blue-collar upper middle class was doing at the time. Uh, they bought a house two blocks away from my grandparents' house who had just built a new house there also. And then all the folks from Bering Cross Baptist Church started buying houses up there. So pretty soon everybody knew everybody else's business. And I was in trouble before I ever got home (laughs) because everybody knew it was me that was ringing the doorbell and running, you know. Mm So It's kind of like growing up in small town Boonville, America, where everybody had the 800 watt scanner and they knew you were in trouble before you did (laughs) everybody knows your name (laughs) oh yeah yeah Yeah. it's uh but it's and i never realized it until just recently talking with my wife uh just how much of a privileged upbringing i actually had more than i give them credit for uh there are things I, I still have issue with that I think they should have done better, but I'm not, I didn't have to do it. Right. And I, I think we could all say that. Uh, looking back, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, you mentioned you were, you were born in Baptist Hospital. You know, recently I had to stay in the hospital and uh, they thought that I had a stroke. And one of the questions they said was, do you know where you're at? And I said, well, that depends on who you are. Because people call this place many different things, and uh, they said, "Okay, so we know you know where you're at." So <laughs> he's so, bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so it, it was one of those things. So you know, talking about, I guess, uh, well, we called it ding dong ditching, uh, which is I don't know what. There's there's a much <laughs> much much worse name for it, you know, and that that brings something out. I was raised very racist, for absolutely no reason at all, because there were no black people where we lived. There were no black people anywhere we went to at church or shopping or 
unless we went to downtown Little Rock and we would go to either Pfeiffer or Blass, usually Blass, I think. And we, I would see black folks there. And I saw the first black Santa in Arkansas. I saw the Jackson 5 in the back window of a, a double-decker bus some guy had <laughs> bought and brought over to Arkansas. But that was my extent of black involvement. And to hear my parents with no shame or, you know, anything just throw out the N-word out there. The other end of that is I was raised with humor very early on because of a gentleman named Bob Harrington. He was uh, declared the chaplain of Bourbon Street by the mayor of New Orleans. Uh, he was an evangelist. He lived right on the strip across from Show Bar, which was a strip club, right next door to a bar on the other side. He put up a big neon cross on the front of his building there with a loudspeaker that played the old rugged cross 24-7 all night long. That's what it was. But he was an inspiration because, as he said, being saved can be fun. Mm -hmm. And I took that to heart. But then in my teens, my influences, and it just kills me because I can't use any of the jokes. Uh, Red Fox, Richard Pryor, uh, later on, Eddie Murphy. But, I mean, these early guys, I can't tell the jokes because of the color of my skin. It just it breaks my heart because totally wrong, can't tell any of the jokes in church or even in the parking lot because the lightning will come quickly. It just that that bugs me on a personal level that I can't do that because of the color of my skin. But I understand why. Mm -hmm. You know, within the church world, we like to think that people are born inherently evil, mm -hmm. uh, and, and and I believe that you you don't have to teach a child how to do wrong. Mm -hmm. You have to teach them what to do right. So on the spectrum of that. Would it be fair to say that children are taught to be racist, even though racist, racism is a, a wrong thing? Oh, certainly. It's, it's learned behavior. And I was never given any reason for it. I distinctly remember asking my mom one time why there were no black people in church. And she said, well, they have their own church to go to. I asked her if it was a different God. Mm-hmm. Of course, she had to answer no. Right. So. Well, I mean, if you want to blow people's minds, you can just remind them in the southern part of the states and in church that Jesus is black, and uh, that kind of sets a lot of people off in a in a negative connotation. See, and if we're going to go there, I'm going to disagree <laughs> with you because he was actually a Hebrew, mm -hmm. and the Hebrews were transplants. They were Egyptians, mm -hmm. and when when they get over there, they're not black folks. They are brown folks, very definitely, but the the well, the hair well, and the and the 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 physical attributes are are very different. Well, let let me back up to say that Jesus is not white. Oh, no. <laughs> Only in America, my friend. <laughs> oh, my gosh. that That's one of the things that just it blows me away. We totally ignore two things, the history and the ethnicity, the people and the culture. We pay no attention to it when we're when we're talking about scripture. Again, very churchy here at this point, but when we're talking about things of scripture, we forget 
my favorite teacher ever, he said, we have to remember that if the people of the day in which Scripture was written did not understand what it meant, it served no purpose. And that is never the case with God's Word. That's the point when I realized we're ignoring the history and the culture. We're ignoring the people it was written to, the person that wrote it, who he's writing about, his perspective on that, because God called him to write it. So so that leads into kind of your early adult years of where you were a big advocate uh, against racism and um, within a, a um, coming to learn of your ethnicity roots in the Indian culture. Yeah, now that's that's jumping a bit. Okay. Just a few years, but by the time I was 17, I was fed up with the church. It was all hypocrites. But when I was 18, my uh, parents told me that uh, I was adopted, uh, which they had not done before. And they also told me that uh, they thought I was part Indian. My father used to call me his little brown-eyed wop. Now, this is your good, godly Southern Baptist family. Now, maybe you should explain what okay. WAP means, okay. because WAP, WAP. today's today's definition of WAP would not include a individual, but rather a body part. Oh, well, no, that's WAP, I think. But anyway, well, WAP, WAP is, a, is an Italian. Depends on where you're from. Yeah, it's an Italian. Okay. That's what he called me. Not all the time, but occasionally he would. That was all we knew, and uh, my mom thought it was Cherokee, maybe. So that's what I went with. And I spent the next 35 years doing programs and movies and all recordings. Uh, I played Native American flute on Native American dress, dance, culture, and music. Most of it I did for gas money. Kind of like singing gospel music. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's getting paid, but nobody's getting paid. Right. So... Yeah, it's <laughs> or, or or we would call it singing for the bus. Yes, yeah, love offerings. Yes, they're a yes. wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. That was that was my life, based on zero information, but just a rumor mm -hmm. kind of thing. I was raised an only child. All of a sudden, we do ancestry dot com. I have fourteen brothers and sisters scattered across five or six states. My mother was a rolling stone, evidently, uh, and she laid her hats down all over the South. And I was the seventh in that line. She didn't raise any of us, but she certainly liked having us, evidently. There's also some damage involved there because uh, she was an alcoholic. She was an addict. She had all the classic diseases that you know, the high blood pressure and diabetes and so forth. But she uh, took her first husband at age of 13. She was chasing men at a military base down the road from her house. There's a lot of damage there, and it was never addressed, but I, I can probably put a face to it, mm -hmm. I think, at this point, just with information sure. I have. Sure. One of two. That also revealed something kind of funky in that I was— um, more than likely born with fetal alcohol syndrome. Mm -hmm. I wasn't adopted out until I was seven months of age. Sorry, I look like a white guy, Native American or otherwise. I look like a white guy. 
why babies go quick. They don't wait seven months. Right. And after a little research, what I found was they held babies for seven months if they were born to an alcoholic mother because of what they didn't know, what they didn't call fetal alcohol syndrome, just to see if the baby was going to be all right, mm-hmm. well enough to be given to a family. Right. And well, not- also that within that seven-month period, you're going to learn if there's a reactive attachment disorder from not having care and nurture from from the mother. So um, that would kind of make sense as well. In Arkansas here, and I don't know if this is kind of a universal thing or not, but unless an adoption is prearranged prior to birth, then the child is held for nine months before that child is available for adoption. So, uh, and really the, the purpose of that is, is to let that child, I guess, get acclimated a little bit into the world while they're in foster care, you know, to be uh, nurtured and loved by family. But then that gives time for the courts to terminate any any possible parental right that that may still be there. Um, so it's very, uh, you know, as as you know, Jennifer and I adopted Luke. We Jennifer's desire was to have a baby, and that's very very uncommon for that to take place. Even with Luke, when we got him at one year and two days, uh, it's very uncommon for you to a child that young as well. So, yeah, I, c- I completely understand that. And mm. and at that time, I'm going to, what what year range was that? I'm going to uh, <laughs> guess what, the 20s or the In 30s? <laughs> <laughs> I have a your mama joke for that, but I, I love your mama, so I'm not going to do it. Um, yeah, that was uh, that would have been 1960. Uh, I was born June 15th, 1960, and seven months later they adopted me. Keep in mind, though, uh, they didn't hold on to babies back then, especially little white babies. I hate to keep coming back to them, but that was the world that mm-hmm. I was born into. Right. I learned the word in the N word before I learned colored, and I learned colored long before I learned black. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was raised with. I find it a bit ironic that my very first ever, ever crush on any female was Lieutenant Uhura, Nichelle Nichols on Star Trek. Mm-hmm. She's still just gorgeous. That one I kept to myself. I did not tell my parents that one. It would not have gone well. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to imagine nowadays how much, because that racism has been converted into people with bison helmets and paint and, you know, raiding the Capitol and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure it still is in some parts of Arkansas and other states farther north, I know. Indiana being the seat of the Ku Klux Klan and all. It was a very different kind of world from what we're living in now. Back then, white folks run down the road, holler the N-word, nobody says anything. Mm -hmm. That's just the way it is. Try that now. Mm-hmm. You'll be on YouTube. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's a very different world. And do you think that's because white folk, I'll use your terminology here, white folk weren't afraid of retaliation from African Americans? Or was it that African Americans were afraid to say anything? I think it's probably a little, little of both. I've heard a lot of folks talk about white guilt. 
I think that does come into play for a lot of folks, but there's just as many folks that'll say, well, I have never owned a slave. I've never mistreated black people. I, I don't have anything to apologize for. I can't help what my great-grandparents or whatever did. And I understand that point of view as well. But the problem is, at least in my mind, if you're benefiting from a society because of the color of your skin and someone else in that society is being downtrodden for the same reason, there's some very deep, basic issues that need to be addressed in, in that society. And I think that's the biggest difference. They were not being addressed when I was growing up. They are being addressed now. I've talked to some various comedians around the country, and some of them are complaining because their uh, humor is having to be adjusted because it's not quite kosher, if you mm -hmm. will. I'm just kind of like, you know, love you, man, but they're right. You mm -hmm. need to back up on that a little bit. It's still funny. You don't have mm -hmm. to go that far with it. Right. Well, even even within my lifetime of growing up after integration, uh, school integration, uh, where I grew up, there weren't any black people. And I remember the first time uh, that my nanny Shep took us, my sister and I, to Fort Smith, and I was probably five, six years old. And I remember, as bad as it sounds, I remember the first time that I saw a black person. And I remember my sister saying, look, nanny, it's a real live N-word. And I'm going, now looking back, I'm going, why did, how did she know to say that? You know, why was that such a occurrence that... That word. Yeah. Why, yeah. why was that a, th a thing? And I remember being very scared as to what was about to transpire because of what had been said. Even today, or even within the last five years, what we say, uh, we have to be a little bit more careful, not because what we are saying is has never been offensive, but because now that we know, we are to be more careful. It's kind of like where Paul told the Romans, he said, now that you know, you're without excuse. And now that we know and we're made aware, then we are without excuse. Um, but we... We always knew. We always knew. But no one was the elephant in the room. No one was willing to address it. No one was willing to take that first step out. And, and everyone that did during my lifetime was killed. Martin Luther King, John and Jack Kennedy, Malcolm X, every single one of them gunned down. You don't open your mouth. You keep your head down, and you do whatever they, whatever that ephemeral they is, you do what they say, and you survive. And wh what has happened, and I really don't understand this, is folks that are, other than being white, they're just as poor and just as mistreated and just as downtrodden as their black brothers and sisters, but they still want to hold that racial edge like they're better than them because of the color of their skin. That has to be, it's got to be addressed on an individual level. It has to be taught from the home. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, there are people of color that use that to their advantage as well and will say, well, yes, I'm going to get a raise because I'm black. Mm -hmm. And if I don't, 
then everybody's going to know that I I'm didn't go, because sue. yeah, sure, yeah. Uh, and so there is that there is that fine line that we have to walk. See, and, and I don't, and it shouldn't any, be that way. I don't have any problem with that mm -hmm. with with a black person reacting like that simply because of the last four hundred years. And we've come down to where this man has to step up and use the color of his skin just to get basic human rights in this country. There's no excuse for that. I understand his frustration. I understand waving the race flag, if you will. I'll, I'll buy the flagpole for you mm -hmm. on that one. If that's what it takes, it's unfortunate that it does. Mm -hmm. I uh, And we're really wrapping this all up in race here, but <laughs> it's a good conversation to have and timely to have. But not too long ago, there was a uh, TikTok therapist that, that made a post in a private group, uh, and she was a person of color. And her she said that the other therapists that are not people of color do not need to try to pretend that they understand what people of color are dealing with and that we should try to help to educate others. And, and I asked the question, how can I help? How, mm. What can I do to help? And her response was this, and I, I took great issue with her response. She said, you're not knowing how to help speaks to your privilege. And I do not have to educate you on what to do. You need to educate yourself. Now, I have a problem with that because if I'm asking a person of color, what can I do to help you? And you tell me, well, you need to figure it out. Well, then you're not you're not furthering your cause, because at the end of the day, I could read every book there has ever been written on race. I could study uh, to know what what it was like, and but I am never ever going to understand what goes on in their inner workings of their soul, because I'm not them. And I've not experienced that. And never will. And never will. Mm -mm. Never will. It's, it, the bland, colorless white guy in this country still has an advantage because he is a bland, colorless white guy. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. Uh, it's not just us. Uh, it happens around the world, and it's, it's skin color that does it. Even the, the the most advanced societies, uh, Britain, they, they have issues with it too. Mm. I think because we're finally willing to look at it without covering our eyes so much, maybe we're going to get something done. Maybe we'll get better. Well, well I'm going to say this, and I may instantly regret saying it. <laughs> But people have put their trust in in our government to try to propagate this this change, if you will. But in doing that, what they did was they elected a white old man. And I really don't think that if I can't understand because of my privilege, then he definitely can't understand with his privilege. And so I, I kind of begin to wonder if if we're going the wrong direction in where we're putting our trust. And at the end of the day, I can say psychologically that I hope that we can become advanced enough that that we could treat each other equally. I have to think that we have been so ingrained that it's just become a part of who we are. I don't want to say it's a genetic thing because it's not, but it's just been passed down over and over and over and again. And for it to change 
It's going to start in each individual. Somebody has to step out. Right. And be able to do it without fear of being shot, quite literally. And that's, that's where the rest of us come in. That's where we, we have someone coming to speak at a college and a small group objects to it and uh, gets very vocal and the school pulls the plug on the, on the speech. Uh, it was a, I can't, he's an atheist gentleman and they were, did that to him at some university. And then the university had to reverse their decision and let him speak because the majority of the students and staff wanted him there. Mm-hmm. We have to be willing to do whatever the community will let us do and nothing else. It becomes, and it's with Native Americans as well. Like I say, I've spent 35 years working with the culture only to find out very recently that I'm actually Choctaw uh, out of Mississippi, which just thrills me to death. I'm so happy, (laughs) way happier than anybody should be because I went through a period with the ancestry where it looked like I was not Native American and I wasted 35 years. You know, Mm -hmm. I just, I was a poser. Mm-hmm. And then the Choctaw showed up, and I'm like, oh, I'm not a poser which, anymore. Which you know, my wife is one 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 hundred and seventy second Cherokee. But she's right. a a card carrying Cherokee. And looking at her, you probably well, at least myself, looking at her, I wouldn't think she was Native American. Oh yeah, Native. hardcore. Yeah, hardcore. Yeah. A lot of uh, Cherokee, especially, they're light skinned. Mm-hmm. She's like what four foot nothing. Yeah. Well, and, uh, five got, foot uh, nothing. Okay. Yeah. Now I think you're. She don't listen it, but, to the yeah. podcast anyway, so we can say whatever <laughs> we want to say about her. But, but uh, and by the way, the, just for the folks, the cough is not COVID. It's cannabis. <laughs> uh, it's legal here in Arkansas. I have no problem using it because it helps with pain, and it helps with uh, some mental issues uh, that I'm not allowed to connect. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it helps. My my question would be is does your psychiatrist believe that the cannabis helps with those mental issues? She did not feel comfortable saying that because we were looking for a a form for her to sign and she said I would not be willing to do that for a psychiatric issue. Mm-hmm. Uh however, if your physician issues one for pain, I would be more than happy to sign that. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what they did. I think she understands, but I suspect there's some strictures with the agency that she works through. And with APA. That prevent her from just out and out putting her signature on something that, sure. even though it's medically legal in Arkansas, it's still federally illegal. Correct. So until that changes, I think we're not going to see a lot of medical professionals like that that are going to be willing to step out. Right. Uh, and just for the benefit of our listeners, he is not smoking here in the studio, <laughs> at least that I can tell. That he knows. <laughs> so anyway. That uh, ain't steam, baby. <laughs> <laughs> getting getting back on track here. Uh, so in becoming an advocate, I guess, uh, which I don't know that that's really even the correct term, uh, being that you're Native American, being an advocate against racism, what kind of kickback or, or instance did you receive from people in your family, I guess, that you became such an advocate 
against racism. Was there any type of issue there? No, they paid absolutely no attention to anything that I did. Once I became an adult, and that's a whole big deal. But anyway, Wait, once, you became an adult? Legally became an adult. Legally, okay. yes. Um, yeah, I'm still working on that part and <laughs> other other uh, avenues. But uh, I honestly, I suspect they'd kind of given up. Uh, they just really did not know what to do with me. And I'm, I'm going to hark back to what I said about fetal alcohol syndrome. I've got all the, all the symptoms. Uh, it fits with the time period, the kind of practices they had in place. And uh, knowing that she was indeed uh, a raging alcoholic, evidently, for most of her, if not all of her life, would lead one to think that it was indeed that and I can see it it's it's stuff that I never knew why I was that way but it was stuff I couldn't control and it was almost like I was a third party standing on the outside going why the hell are you doing that but uh yeah it's uh oh and that's um I knew I was supposed to be a pastor when I was uh nine 11. I uh, got saved when I was nine. Bering Cross Baptist Church, big church down there. I used to play in the basement before the church was finished. It was just bricks. Um, by the time I was 11, I knew I was supposed to do whatever that man was doing up in front of the auditorium. I didn't realize at the time that was partly my raging ego at an early stage, knowing that I needed to be in front of people. Uh, but that's one of the pastoral gifts. So, <laughs> but I knew that's what it was supposed to do. And I told my parents and their response was, you don't want to do that. There's no money in it. Big silence. Even mm-hmm. then I knew that was wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't know a whole lot about the faith at that point. Yeah, that was, there was, you know, knowing that, that I had this calling, didn't even know what it was, but knowing that I had this calling and then being willing to, uh, just flat say you don't want to do that because of money. Mm. Well, it's still uh, not much difference today. Uh, the only preachers that are getting rich are are the preachers that are are preaching somewhat of a false gospel. Almost to a person. There's a couple. There's a couple that I think are okay. Charles Stanley does pretty good. Yeah. Um, I'm Plug for uh, Charles Stanley. Send me a T-shirt, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, Louis Grizzard that said, uh, if you remember Louis Grizzard, he said that his mother had this insatiable desire that he be a pastor. And she said, Louis, you could make a million dollars doing that. And he said, Mama, I know I could make a million dollars. The problem is, what would I spend it on? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, that's... Uh, I. Well, you've seen part of it, my uh, uh, evangelist starter kit with all the cheap gold jewelry mm-hmm, and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I've told folks, all I have to do is learn how to lie in front of the Lord, and I'm I'm in. Yeah, I've got the money. I'm ready to go. I'll I I need the money. <laughs> you know, uh, one one year for Halloween, I dressed up as uh, the Reverend Gimme Cash. I mean Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy Cash. Yeah. Give me cash. Jimmy Cash. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think I've seen his show. Yeah. <laughs> um, what well, was it? how do you spell it? Cash is S W A G G. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> 
Most people won't get that reference. <laughs> That's probably better that they don't. <laughs> anyway, okay, reining, reining this back in. Okay. Then we get into uh, your adult life, and um, you're you're married, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, you found somebody that would put up with you, mm-hmm. and uh, that you could put up with two times. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that initial first marriage and and how everything worked and then didn't work uh, that led to your divorce. Uh, we were married a year and a half. We got married because that's what you do when you get a girl pregnant. And that's where I got my wonderful, amazing, incredibly smarter than his dad's son, uh, Chris. Tells a lot about me, though. His name is Christopher Lee Walker. And the Christopher is spelled C-R-I-S-S, like the drummer from Kiss, Peter Mm -hmm. Chris. And the whole name, Christopher Lee, is the British actor that played Dracula. Okay. So there you go. That's his dad. I'll make a note of that. We can talk about later. (laughs) Okay. We were married for a year and a half. I found out she was cheating on me with five other men at the same time. And that was it. She had to go. I ended up living in a a shotgun apartment on the end of a, a strip that had been built off the side of a house down on Cher. It's no longer there. And that's where I... Met my wife of 31 years, 31 Mm -hmm. years. Uh, That's Carol. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, she, and here's the thing. She knew what she was getting. And I never understood until later. It's because of her own damage that she didn't see. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, It's, it's amazing how that works. It is. It is. God puts people together that you would never suspect of, of being there. I mean, she has her own damage like we all do. Uh, I have my own, and it, it connects in a very strange, miraculous way. I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, oh, nothing like that. Just it's, you, if you look at the relationship, it looks like it shouldn't work. But it does, and it's worked for 31 years, 31, 32, 31, 30, 31 years. Yes. No. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let me explain. I'm, <laughs> they're all going, what's it, wrong with that boy? It's the cannabis. It's the, <laughs> <laughs> actually, it's not. Now, s- stop it. <laughs> so. Carol and I got married December 16th of whatever year that is, 1980-whatever, okay? One year later, December 20th, we had Miles, Mm -hmm. our youngest son. So my favorite thing as, as a pastor and as a minister of the gospel was to tell the ladies, you know, the ladies Mm -hmm. at church that we'd gotten married December 16th and had miles December 20th and leave that year in the middle out (laughs) and just watch the steam. Yeah. Oh, it was, it's so much fun. Just asking for trouble. Yeah. And, and Carol's like whacking me going, stop doing that. I know it's funny, but stop doing it. They don't (laughs) 
So, so let's talk about if, if you're willing, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, where you really hated me, you called me dirty names. Uh, I did not. Yes, that was you Carol. Did. No, no, no. Well, yeah, but you did first. At first, it was, it was, it was. You told me you called me dirty names. You didn't actually say it to me. Okay. But there was a point where you got very, very depressed. Oh yes. Um, now I, you I remember calling to, me dirty names. I, <laughs> you know, I you say that. But that is, in the same breath, that is the best thing anybody has done for me mm-hmm. in my life, frankly. Nobody else would have had the guts to do it. Well, this was back in the day. I wasn't a nice person. Yeah, I would have just took but, your cane uh, and kicked you in the shin and left me for yeah, dead. left you yeah, there. Yeah. If you're going for the wallet, you're just practicing. There's <laughs> nothing in there. Did I mention the password? Yeah. Um I I had never been treated for any kind of uh, psychiatric or psychological anything other than a court-ordered period of like a couple of months. My parents didn't continue after that because, you know, only crazy people go to psychiatrists. Right. Right. So no treatment of any sort. Huge depressive episodes. And I was right in the middle of one. And showed up here over at church, and you asked me the question. And what is the question? Or, or do you feel like you would hurt yourself or others? Do you feel like you're a danger to yourself or others? And I stupidly answered in the affirmative. Yes, mm-hmm. I do. And you responded, you do realize you just told me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I left you no choice. And uh, that's when Carol started cussing you because I told you not to say anything to her. Mm-hmm. So that's on me. Um, she likes you better. <laughs> she likes you a lot better. I'm just going to say. It was it was a really hard situation for both of us because I had no idea how to, how to act. Um, my pastor committed me, in, in essence, um, for three days, I think, something like that. 72 hours. You know, yeah. And, but I think uh, you ended up staying longer. I, I had to because it was on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was it was amazing. Once I got past that, oh gosh, my mother had passed away, had she not? Mm-hmm. Right before that. And I love my mother. I don't like my mother. Okay. Big difference. Yeah, I I had had to move back to Arkansas. We lived in Indianapolis. I had to move back over very short notice, take care of my mom who had Alzheimer's dementia. Hit that, ran into a young lady that was the daughter of a lady I knew from way back, and she helped us get settled. And then Carol and Miles moved down, and all this was had been going on. And, you know, if I'd given it any thought, I would never have answered to the affirmative, which is probably why I didn't give it any thought, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. I, I think God stepped into the middle of that. And he got me a, a Christian psychiatrist in there. He got me some Christian nurses in there. Uh, I got to meet some wonderful people. I got to do magic for folks. This is a huge, huge break for me to actually 
to let go of stuff. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, it's, yeah, it's still broken, but you can't fix it. You're someplace where maybe they can, so why don't you let them? I tell everybody I got better when I got better drugs. And, uh, but they, uh, I got into a, see a psychiatrist as a result. I got on medication that I should have been on since I was a child and not realizing I had been self-medicating all that time, smoking, smoking the evil weed, the devil's um, lettuce, the devil's lettuce. Yes. yes there we go. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, self-medicating, not realizing I was doing it, come to find out that's exactly what I had been doing. And so at least in my opinion, that was a big step in the right direction absolutely for you and and uh <clears throat> i began to realize then that uh there was a big turnaround there there was a lot of hurt uh in that because there were some relationships that you had to sever uh that that came out of that and then covid came yeah and if this is still a little fresh to talk about we can we can I'm, bypass, but I'm I'm good. I can I can still cold cold go with it. So okay, COVID came along, and uh, my son Miles worked at Kroger. He has special needs. He's 31 years old, and he was a bagger at Kroger. Well, we pulled him off the job to help us uh, isolate, mm-hmm. quarantine, quarantine in order to quarantine ourselves. Carol. My wife still had to work, but we limited everything else. So, and and Miles, with his disability, through no fault of his own, could not be. Uh, we could not be sure that he would be careful enough to not bring the virus home. Right. Uh, so he's off, and Kroger's evil. That's all I'm gonna say about it at this point. But uh, anyway, we pulled him uh, in, and he was he was staying home with us. And uh, then a lady at my wife's work came down with COVID. And Carol caught it. Her boss caught it. And she brought it home. And I caught it, and it lasted like three days. Nothing. Just felt funky. Miles caught it, and we didn't think anything about it because he had already been on, you know, when you test positive, you get on the antibiotics Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, we ended up putting him in the hospital December 24th. We put him in the hospital with COVID pneumonia. And the 27th, he passed. So that's what we're dealing with now. Because just to be blunt about it, we watched him suffocate to death. Evidently, his, his lung, the, the lungs don't collapse, but it's like the inside of him is just stripped. There's no alveoli in there to draw oxygen or anything. So that's what we got to watch. But we were there, and we weren't supposed to be. And they let us in because of his disability. So he was, we were there, and he knew it. We didn't have to watch through the glass. We had all kinds of gloves and masks and all this stuff on, but uh, we were there. And so there's a, a little bit of comfort knowing that you were there and he, he wasn't alone. Um, but it uh, most certainly is, is difficult. Oh, yeah. There's no, uh, no doubt about that. Um, 
I mean, I, I compensate a lot with humor. That's how I learned to deal with depression, things like that. The whole thing about comedians being suicidal, it's, it's true. It falls right into that. That's how we compensate. But I had nothing to compensate with this. Uh, I had never had anyone die in front of me and certainly not someone that I deeply cared about, you know. Uh, so I and still having problem handling it. Uh, it's uh, I, I would be concerned if you weren't. Yeah. Well, and that's and that's the thing because I am a pastor because I do have the training behind that and part of that is noethetic counseling or counseling from scripture. J. Adams method. We use contemporary treatment methods based in scripture. Yeah, it's uh, th- that's what it was knowing. The, the stages of grief, knowing how to help others get through those stages of grief doesn't do diddly squat for you when you're the one going through them. Absolutely. And it's, uh, I, I learned that very quickly uh, in this case. My issue now uh, is I keep trying to help Carol, and I can't help myself. Mm-hmm. which is why I'm going to a psychiatrist. We're getting her into treatment. I think she goes in middle of the month. And we don't have any family down here. We have no familial support here at all. Everybody's dead. I am the last of the line. There's a voice you can edit. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> the sound guy's going, what the heck was that? <laughs> um but again, you know, compensation. And you'll folks, if they listen through all this, they'll they'll hear it over and over that it's humor that that makes the pain palatable, I guess. Yeah. One thing, and, and it's no it's no secret that I see a therapist. One thing that I find my therapist saying often to me is if somebody came to you and said to you what you just said to me, what would you tell them? And I always have an answer. I always have a good answer. And he's often said, boy, if you could just take your own advice. Oh, exactly. And exactly. it's difficult. Well, you know, there's a there's two different kinds of pastors. There's called and there's educated. <laughs> and folks that are in the church system will understand what I mean when I say that. But basically what it, there's there's a separation between God called and school educated in, in a lot of places in this <laughs> country, a lot of them which are down on our end of the country or bottom of the country, but you're one or the other, not understanding that the education is a direct response to the call. I mean, you got a job to do. You got to learn how to do it first. Paul did that. He hung out with a couple of tent makers for a while and learned what it was he believed. Mm -hmm. He didn't even know. He knew he believed, which is I think kind of cool. It gives a good opportunity for the rest of us. You just have to believe a little. Right. Well, we uh, we referred to that as the God called and the mama called. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I've never heard that. Uh, but I, I think since you brought up Paul, I, I think that it's it's important for us to realize that even after Paul's conversion on the road, the Damascus road. Yeah. yeah I always get Damascus and Emmaus mixed up. That shows how good of a preacher I am. Um, do you see where I wrote my scriptural <laughs> reference? I do. <laughs> I, 
<laughs> I have a scriptural reference I wrote on my left hand for 1 Corinthians 9.20 because that's where we're headed at yeah. some point. Uh, is that a lot of people don't realize that after his conversion, he ran away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and he had to have time to to process the guilt that he had for all of the bad that he had done. And, and I really like to think that Paul had to have some kind of self-psychology help there as to the brokenness that he had dealt with. And, you know, and as we finish up this part of the segment, as we've gone a little longer than normal, so is that as Christians, there are a lot of Christians who would look at somebody, another Christian who is depressed and say, if you would just trust God, you wouldn't be depressed. You know how I feel about that. Okay, well, you're diabetic. Trust God and don't take your insulin. Yeah. You know, uh, trust God and take your glasses off and go drive. Um, well, they, they don't give it the respect as a medical profession that they would any of the others that you just mm-hmm. mentioned. Uh, but it's not just exclusive to the church. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all around us. Well, so. we're crazy people. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's really what it, we're crazy people. And that's that's how we're seen. We're not. We're people with medical issues that need help and we're seeking help. So why are you going to why are you going to smack us for doing getting medical help for mm-hmm. a, an illness? Right. It is the world in which we live. That's true. All right. Well, uh, thank you for listening to Doc Talks today. I'm Doc Brian. And as we go into this second part, hopefully you'll follow us over there to Doc Talks DX uh, on Patreon, where we talk about a diagnosis, what we actually think is going on with our dis- uh, our guest, and discuss potential treatment of how we would bring all this together to help them cope with their mental illness. Uh, Timothy, I appreciate you sharing your story with us today, and we'll get into a little bit more of that story on the second part of this podcast, uh, Doc Talks DX. You can find me at thedocbrian.com, uh, doc underscore Brian on Instagram, thedocbrian. There's a link at the bottom of my website of all my social media, so feel free to follow us there, and we look forward to having you with us next time. Uh, once again, make sure to check out the second part of this episode, Doc Talks DX, on Patreon. Of course, Doc Talks is a part of the B Frank Network. Uh, you can check out all of our podcasts there at bfranknetwork.com. Uh, Timothy, thank you for being with us on Doc Talks today. And uh, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you later. Goodbye. <laughs>